herzlich willkommen. Hello and welcome. Hier spricht Marion Jones. This is Marion Jones. Und Sie hören City Breaks zu. And you're listening to City Breaks. City Breaks Berlin, Episode 5, in fact. To which I am giving the title, Four Berlin Squares. Because yes, I'm going to hop about and visit four squares, all of which, as it happens, were in the eastern half of the city, and which between them offer lots of wonderful things to go and see. Some Baroque beauty, a DDR showplace, a square that used to be the heart of Berlin and is now completely different. So, let's make a start then with Gendarmenmarkt. Not too far from Unter den Linden, let's say a few minutes walk south from the Unter den Linden U-Bahn station, and a square I have seen described somewhere as Berlin's prettiest square. And yes, it may well be. If you have a linguist here, you probably notice that it doesn't sound very German in name, and that's because it was built in the area of Berlin where the Huguenots settled. They'd been booted out of France in the 1690s because they were Protestants. Berlin had made it clear that they'd be welcome to settle here, and about 6,000 people came, which at the time was more than it sounds, I think about a third of the total population. It was originally a lovely square of lawns and fountains, cobbled over, I'm afraid, in 1936 in preparation for the Olympics. It was used by the Nazis for more military purposes, marching about, that sort of thing, and then reconfigured after reunification in 1989, prettied up, trees reintroduced, etc. And what you'll find today is a lovely large square with three very imposing and beautiful buildings on it. A cathedral-like building at each end, the French cathedral and the German cathedral, as they're called, although I don't think, strictly speaking, either of them is a cathedral. And in the middle, the imposing and historically significant concert house, so concert hall. OK, let's take those one at a time. The French church, built at the northern end of the square, a project very much supported by Frederick II, or Frederick the Great, who was keen to make the Huguenots feel welcome. This was to be their church, under his protection, as it says in the inscription over the entrance, Unter dem Schutz der Hohenzollern, under the protection of the Hohenzollerns, so the German royal family. It was built in the old Protestant tradition, so quite plain and simple inside, no pictures, no altar, a sort of understated elegance created by the curved ceiling arches, for example. Just one opulent decoration, namely the organ, decorated in gold, no less, and actually something that's still a draw today because this is a church known for its concerts. High-quality musical events put on, I think, every week by the church itself and also by others who come in and rent the space. If you go as a visitor, obviously that would be open to you, you can also climb the tower for a 360-degree view of Berlin and there's a little museum to visit which will tell you the story of the Huguenot refugees. So that's the French cathedral, or Französische Dôme, as it's called in German, and at the other end of the square, the equally imposing Deutsche Dom, German cathedral. Again, not strictly speaking a cathedral, it's a bit confusing that the word Dom, which they're using for the building, means dome, but it also means cathedral, so I think it's been mistranslated somewhere along the line. Anyway, it was built as a church, also in the 1700s, you can tell that again by the inscriptions all around the outside, Things like Selig sind die Barmherzigen, which translates as Blessed are the Merciful, so one of the Beatitudes. It was a Lutheran Calvinist tradition church, so again, very plain Protestant tradition, and the site of one or two important moments in history. 
1848, for example, after the revolution, the bodies were laid out here. A scene depicted in a well-known German painting, the laying out of the March revolutionaries. It, like so many other buildings, was destroyed in World War II, rebuilt afterwards in the 1980s and 90s, but then deconsecrated. So the building, certainly on the outside, is pretty much as it was, but the use it's put to inside is completely different. If you go there today, you will find an exhibition of five floors on the history of the German Parliament from 1848 to the present. So from that momentous revolution which centred on this area, right through all the toing and froing of creating the German democracy which exists today. It's very detailed, lots of text, photos, films, school groups role-playing being in Parliament. There's a little room set aside for that and it's decorated with a replica of that massive eagle which you find in the actual German Reichstag or Parliament. Of the two, I would say the French cathedral is going to be more interesting for most people to look round. Then, in the middle of the square, as imposing as either of them, the Konzerthaus. You can tell that there are cultural references around, just from the outside, where there's a statue of the classical German author Schiller, put up in the 1850s, paid for by the Crown Prince Wilhelm himself and the city of Berlin and public donations, so a statue everybody wanted. Until the Nazis came along, of course, they didn't like Schiller. They took the statue away because it was in the way of their parade ground. But happily, as you'll see, it's now back in situ. So, the concert house, you certainly won't miss that. It's got the most amazing wide steps leading up to the front of the building. Steps, incidentally, which only royalty were allowed to use. But these days you are welcome to use them yourself. There's even a red carpet right up the middle. And the theatre is usually open at normal hours and you can pop in and have a look round. And here again, you are in a historic building. It went up in the 1820s. It became the Parliament for a few weeks in 1848, after the revolution I was talking about a minute ago. And it's changed its name over the centuries to reflect its different roles. So it started as the Königliches Schauspielhaus, the Royal Theatre. After 1870, it became the Preussisches Staatstheater, so the Prussian State Theatre. Today, they've abandoned the royal and the nationalist connotations, and it's simply called the Concert House. It has been the site for some very illustrious performances. The premiere of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, for example, in 1826, and also of Wagner's Flying Dutchman 20 years or so later. And in 1989, December 1989, so just a few weeks after the fall of the wall, Leonard Bernstein was there, conducting the Berlin Celebration Concert at which, of course, Beethoven's Ninth was played again, as was Beethoven's Order an die Freiheit, Ode to Freedom. There were more celebration concerts in 1990, that was reunification of the two Germanys, and where else but here to conduct the 25th anniversary of the Fall of the Wall celebration concert in 2014. Once again, the building was pretty much destroyed in the war, but it was faithfully reconstructed to the original design. And in fact, on their website, there's a little two-minute video showing the story of the concert house. It's mainly music and pictures, and worth a watch, I'd say. I'll put the link in the show notes. Okay, so that's Gendarmenmarkt. Not too far away, a little closer to Unterdin Linden, is Babelsplatz, a Baroque beauty which I did mention briefly in a previous episode. Designed again by Frederick the Great, 
If you remember, he was the king of many parts, known as the Philosopher King, and also as Alter Fritz, Old Fritz, successful soldier and conqueror, man of the arts as well, lover of architecture, etc. And he wanted this whole area to be rebuilt beautifully and to be known as the Forum Fridericianum, so Latinized but called after himself. And so it's surrounded by imposing buildings, the Opera House, the Old Library, Prince Heinrich's Palace, which is now Humboldt University, and others which I mentioned on the episode on Unted in Linden. This splendid architectural project was the talk of the town in the 1700s. The newspapers wrote all about it, travellers wrote home about it, Frederick courted popularity with the people of Berlin by making the Opera House free and open to all for the carnival season, when there'd be a whole host of opera performances and masked balls. It was said that a thousand carriages would wait outside to collect the spectators after these events. If you go today, there are two things of note, really, on the square itself. One which is obvious, St Hadrick's Church, and one which you'll miss if you don't know it's there, and that's the memorial to the book burning which took place here in Babelsplatz in the 1930s. So, the cathedral then, briefly built by Frederick in a move to integrate the Silesians who were coming to Berlin after he conquered their territory. They were mainly Catholic. They wanted a Catholic cathedral. He agreed. And there's a nice little story told about the day he decided to do this. Frederick was sitting at breakfast. Representatives of Berlin Catholics came to see him and asked for a cathedral. He said yes. They said, oh, what will it look like? And he apparently picked up his coffee cup turned it over and said, it will look like this. Think of that when you see it with its round dome on top. And do pop in if you can to visit. Again, I'll put the link to their website at the end of the show notes. The spot marking the book burning is a bit harder to find because at first glance, it is just, in inverted commas, a plaque on the pavement, somewhere towards the middle of the square. Chances are, when you're looking for it, you'll notice a group of people already clustered around it. So, this is the spot where, on the 10th of May, 1933, books were burned. This is right at the beginning of Hitler's chancellorship. Nazi ideology, including anti-Semitism, was rife, and the German Student Association decided they would get involved. They rampaged round the libraries, taking out all the books they thought were anti-Nazi in any way, and staged a ceremonial burning of them, some 20,000 books here on the square, with a big audience watching, including Nazi security forces, Hitler Youth, and Goebbels himself, who made a speech. What you'll actually see, if you look down at your feet, is a thick glass plate set into the cobbles, and through it you'll see empty bookshelves, enough in fact to hold about 20,000 books. And then also set into the cobbles is a brass plaque, with a quotation by the author Heinrich Heine, his books had been burnt, which dates, in fact, from a good century earlier, 1821, but which turned out to be very prescient. Where books are burned, he wrote, they will end up also burning human beings. So, as memorials go, it's quite understated, but I found a really good explanation of its significance written by an author and journalist, Salil Tripathi. This is how he explained it. The Nazi bonfire was not some insane Taliban escapade, where they burnt any book that was not the Quran, the Nazi youth burnt specific books by specific authors, 
if they were Jewish, socialist or communist, and Heine was prescient about what would happen in his country a century later. Five years after the book burning, in November 1938, on a single night, Nazi youth destroyed hundreds of synagogues in Germany. World War II started ten months later. The Holocaust and its horrors, where they burnt people, were revealed six years later. He's good too on the importance of books. Quote, you could disagree with a book, argue with it, challenge it and defy it, but burn it. Germany was the culture of Mann and Schopenhauer, of Kant and Hegel, Nietzsche and Goethe. Ideas clashed with each other and wisdom flourished. So then, that's Babelsplatz. Do try not to miss it when you're wandering up and down wanted in Linden. Also quite near, just a few minutes' walk away from there, is Alexanderplatz, the biggest public square in any city in Germany. Named originally after Tsar Alexander I from Russia, who visited Berlin in 1805. Again, a place with lots of historical significance, particularly, I think, from the GDR, so the East German era. When it was first built, it was supposed to be a military parade and exercise ground. When the railway station opened there in the 1880s, it began its role as a major transport junction, which it still is today. In the late 19th century, a central market hall was built, and in 1904, the Tietz department store went up. So then it became a shopping centre too. Alexanderplatz was, you knew it really, destroyed in World War II rebuilt then by the GDR, so the German Democratic Republic, because it was very firmly in the eastern part of Berlin. I did actually visit it in those days on a cold, foggy day, and I just remember the largest, greyest, most depressing-looking square you could possibly imagine. Something hard to think today. The East Germans did their best, though. They put up various things to make it more attractive. The world time clock, for example. The fountain of friendships between peoples. And in 1974, they held their big celebrations there for the 25th anniversary of the German Democratic Republic. However, a decade or so later, it was also the site for major protests demanding the end of the GDR, especially on November the 4th, 1989, when 200,000 people gathered to call on the government to step down, to allow a free press, to open up East Germany's borders and allow them to travel. Speeches were made by brave people, including the writer Christoph Wolf, who opened like this. Dear citizens, revolutions liberate language. Words that were once so hard to say suddenly tumble from our lips. We marvel as our beliefs, held for so long, now fill the streets as people shout it out loud at the tops of their voices. Democracy now or never. She'd very much caught the mood of the era because the socialist GDR society was about to be turned upside down. In fact, only five days later came the fall of the Berlin Wall. That led, of course, as in the whole of Berlin, to a new era here on Alexanderplatz. The big shopping department store, Galeria Kaufhof, went up. I can recommend that, actually, as a good place for snacks. If you go up to the top floor, you find a food hall where everyone can have what they want, because it's a massive choice, relatively inexpensive. There are also shopping malls, one called Alexa, for example. There's a Cubics Multiplex Cinema, Christmas markets in December, and something very German, mobile sausage sellers who strap a portable cooker around their neck and will cook for you right there in front of your eyes. A tasty little hot snack. 
There are a number of sites not to miss on Alexanderplatz, most notably the Fernsehturm or TV Tower, just west of the main square, something you can see from all over the city. A Berlin icon, if you will. It was built by the East German government in the 1960s as a radio and TV transmitter, but really also as a showpiece of East German technology. So of course it had to be bigger than the Siegessäule, the Victory Column in West Berlin, but they overdid it by quite some measure and it ended up as Germany's tallest structure. Today you can go up it in a lift for views all over the city and it feels like quite a normal touristy thing to do, but do bear in mind that this was the symbol of East Germany, or perhaps more accurately, East Berlin, although it was mocked even at the time because it turned out that the sunlight produced a strange cross-shaped reflection at certain times of day something deemed to be quite amusing in a very secular state like East Germany. Berliners were known to joke that perhaps this was the Pope's revenge. Going up to the top today is just one of those things that visitors do in Berlin, but do try to keep hold of the idea that it was a symbol of communist Germany, a concept very nicely described by Simon Cole in his Berlin blog. Quote, And that mirrored glass maybe a little too like the windows in an interrogation room, or the shades on the guy who always happens to turn up when you do in the cafe. The tower once served, like all communist architecture, to dwarf those below it, to remind you that you were nothing compared to the collective, namely the state and its many tentacles. There is a reason why dictators built big, just like they did at the imposing Tempelhof under a different but equally totalitarian regime always there, always watching, always bigger. Other things to have a quick look at would include the world clock, also built by the East German government in 1969. Their attempt, I think, to make it sound as if East Berlin was connected with the whole of the rest of the world. Quite ironic, I should imagine, if you lived there and couldn't get out. Anyway, it's quite a clever contraption. A large 24-sided shape, labelled with the world time zones and major cities in each one, and then a revolving band of numbers. So at any time of day or night, you go along, find the city you're interested in, and the number underneath it will tell you the time in that city. And then just a little further west again, but still in the area known as Alexanderplatz, there's the Marienkirche, so St Mary's Church, a 13th century gem which has been largely restored, statue of Martin Luther outside, and a very scary frieze inside from the 15th century, known as the Tortentanz, so the Dance of Death, put up during the plague years. It disappeared for centuries, actually, because it was whitewashed over, but it was unearthed in the 19th century, and described very nicely by Franz Hessel, who wrote his book, Walking in Berlin, in 1929. The key figure in the Tortentanz, or Dance of Death, is death itself. And then there are a whole host of characters taking part in the dance with him. An Augustinian monk, a Carthusian monk, abbots, bishops, a cardinal in his red hat, the Pope himself. Then there's an image of Christ, and on the other side of that, a whole host of worldly people. For example, quote, The emperor with sceptre and crown, clothed in blue gold and led by death towards the empress, gathering the train of her dress. There are kings and moneylenders and gentlemen and squires and farmers and craftsmen, everybody, all taking part in the Dance of Death. So if you're not easily spooked, do pop in and have a look at that. 
Also on this part of the square, the Neptune fountain, which rises up in the middle and shows Neptune presiding over four goddesses who represent the four rivers of Germany. You might spot the Rotes Rathaus as well. That translates into Red Town Hall in English. It's Berlin City Hall these days. And just past that, perhaps using a map, you can turn left into the Nikolai Viertel, where you'll find the Nikolai Kirche, so St Nicholas's Church, dating from 1230, and a host of little lanes around it which are a reconstruction of medieval Berlin, built, perhaps rather unexpectedly, by the East German government in 1987 to celebrate the 750th anniversary of Berlin. So in this little area you will find cobbles and oldie-worldie restaurants and wrought-iron shop signs. Definitely worth a wander. So then, those three squares, Gendarmenmarkt, Bebelsplatz and Alexanderplatz, are all relatively close together. A little further away is the Potsdamer Platz. And I've left it till last because it's slightly more confusing. Here's the visitberlin.de website on the topic. The term Potsdamer Platz is an imprecise one. Actually, it's only the square next to Leipziger Platz, but Berliners have come to refer to the whole area as Potsdamer Platz. So that's the first confusion. It's not a square, it's an area. And more confusingly, the square itself has largely gone. So if you go to visit today, it is other things you will be visiting. But worth a quick look back, I think, because Potsdamer Platz was one of the central squares of Old Berlin until it was obliterated in World War II. As the Lonely Planet Guide puts it, it then, quote, plunged into a coma because it was split in two by the Berlin Wall. In fact, there's a little part of it still visible there today. The heyday of Potsdamer Platz was perhaps the 1920s and 30s, when it was the heart of Berlin nightlife. Think Piccadilly Circus in London or Times Square in New York. So full of shops and big department stores, Really famous ones like Wertheim, for example, opened in 1897, twice the size of the German Parliament, a huge long facade of granite and plate glass, so screaming new and modern to the rest of Berlin. 83 lifts inside, a summer garden, a winter garden, a roof garden, an enormous restaurant, all sorts of more unexpected things for a large shop, a laundry, a theatre, a bank and an institution known to generations of German children who were taken to Wertheim in December because it was transformed into a fairy tale kingdom. In the area too, some of the fanciest hotels, the Esplanade where Charlie Chaplin and Greta Garbo stayed, famous cafes like the Café Josti where writers and artists and politicians would gather. The area was known as Diplomatenviertel as well, so the Diplomatic Quarter because it was full of embassies and diplomats. The nightlife was legendary, centering around jazz clubs and transvestite clubs. And more prosaically, it was also a traffic hub. The place, in 1924, where the first traffic lights in Europe were installed. Not quite traffic lights as we know them today. There was a tower put up, the policeman sat up there and ordered the lights manually. This too was such a Berlin institution that a replica of it still stands there today. The area was completely destroyed in the 1940s and not rebuilt in the same way as other parts of Berlin in the 1960s because of the Berlin Wall, which ran right through the middle of the square and made it into a wasteland. 28 years in limbo, as I've seen it described. Although a place which was strangely fascinating to tourists 
and actually Berliners themselves, who would go along to make use of the observation platform, which was put up on the western side, so you could climb over it and gaze over the wall to East Berlin, which remained a strange and mysterious place for almost everyone in the West. And so you can understand that when it came to the fall of the wall, the Potsdamer Platz was one of the key places where people gathered. Here is an eyewitness report of that momentous evening, written by John Simpson, the journalist, in his memoir, Strange Places, Questionable People. Quote, The reunification was going on all along the wall. There was the sound of hammering on both sides. People were beating at the wall with pickaxes and hammers and chisels. They worked away at the joins between the slabs of concrete, making the little loopholes, which were slowly getting bigger. When the crowds parted, you could sometimes get a glimpse through to the no-man's land beyond. And then, during the 1990s and beyond, the major rebuild began. Potsdamer Platz, the area, is now really an area of glass and steel, I'd say, perhaps typified by the Sony Centre built right in the middle, which the Lonely Planet Guide describes as, quote, a plaza canopied by a tent-like glass roof, with supporting beams radiating out like bicycle spokes. If you wander over that, you're going to have trouble picturing the old Potsdamer Platz, I think. But it is a sight to see, and it's particularly spectacular after dark when the colours of the roof change and put on a sort of light show. So, go to Potsdamer Platz for its shopping malls, of which there are quite a number, its film and Fernsehmuseum, so film and television museum, lots of cinemas, quite a good place to go in a group, actually, because people can go to different films, and they do show quite a lot with English subtitles. Cinema-wise, it's a place which absolutely comes to life in February, during the Berlin Film Festival, the Berlinale, when there'll be red carpets and TV cameras and visiting stars. So if you do go to Berlin in February, although you will have to put up with the freezing temperatures, you will have the Berlinale as a sort of source of excitement and a focus for your visit, perhaps. Also in the area is the Panorama Punkt, which contains Europe's fastest lift, which for a small payment whisk you up to the top to a viewpoint across the city. Near the train station, you can see a few remaining pieces of the Berlin Wall left there for people to look at. Oh yes, and Potsdamer Platz, just like Alexanderplatz, is one of the city's main transport hubs, somewhere you're very likely to find yourself changing U-Bahn or S-Bahn. And finally, if you are interested in the history of the area, the Berlin tourist people have come up with an ingenious way to help you enjoy that here. Find the Deutsche Bahn Tower, and you will find on the ground in front of it a giant QR cobble, so a digital cobblestone, where, as the visitberlin.de website explains, you can, quote, scan it with the QR scanner on your mobile and experience an interactive trip through time with historical panorama views. I have to admit I have not tried this myself because I didn't know about it when I went on my research trip, but I think when I go again, I will seek it out. Because even if you've read about the history of Potsdamer Platz and all the things it was famous for, it's quite hard to believe it when you are surrounded by traffic and steel and glass. And I don't know about you, but I love those photos of old Berlin. So I'll put the link to that too in the show notes. And that just about rounds up then my visit to all four squares. All different, each worthy of a visit for different reasons and between them making up quite a significant part of the jigsaw puzzle, which is today's Berlin.
So then, moving on a little, in the next few episodes, I'm going to delve back into history, particularly World War II and the periods after that, and have a look at all the places in the city which you can visit to learn more about all those things. And starting next week with an episode called Finding World War II in Berlin, going through a number of sites and monuments which will all help you piece together the story of Berlin from the 1930s through to the end of the Second World War. Berlin has been very much praised worldwide for the way in which it does remember these events and tries to help current generations learn from them. So I want to have a look at that and then move on in subsequent episodes to the next periods in Berlin's history, namely the Berlin Wall and the days of divided Berlin, how it started, what it was like, how it finished. So I hope you feel interested to join me for some or hopefully all of that. And meanwhile, I'm just going to thank you very much for listening today. Vielen Dank fürs Zuhören and to look forward to your company next time. Bis zum nächsten Mal. Goodbye. Auf Wiederhören.